Hey everyone, Ian here before we get started. I just wanted to let everyone know that this is going to be our last episode for the year. We were going to be finally recording our one shot with Of Mice and Man and Monsters, and I even said as much when we were recording the episode, but apparently I said it too loud and didn't knock on wood hard or fast enough because the scheduling demon reared its ugly head and interfered with our plans yet again. We're still working on figuring out when and if we'll be able to reschedule again, but it almost certainly won't be happening until after the first of the year. So now, with the combination of James coming up on his final exams and both of us having our myriad holiday obligations, we just don't have the time to get together and record another episode in December or to put the amount of planning necessary into getting a decent quality episode. But we will be back following a regular schedule on Wednesday, January 10th, 2024. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for your understanding. Happy holidays, everyone, uh, whatever you may celebrate, and we look forward to having you back in the new year. Now, on with the show. And welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Because war, war never changes. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host, James Daly. And today, James and I are running on fumes. So <laughs> we have decided that we are going to talk about something not D&D. We decided to change it up a little bit to give us the motivation to actually come in here and chat. <laughs> no, actually, uh, this is a good thing. Again, off timeline, but we are coming up on the holidays. We both have had a bunch of stuff to get done. But we are, as we talk in our intro, we are a TTRPG podcast, not a D&D podcast. So this is good. And I really do like the ability to kind of stretch out and talk about some other game systems on occasion as well. Yeah, and you know, if you know, you know, based off of James's intro quote for today, but this is a game that we have talked about several times on the podcast before, and this is a TTRPG that I've wanted to run for forever, to the point where I found a copy of the original unpublished version that they were going to release back in the late 90s, and then a hack of that, and I have built a game that is a hack of a hack of a hack of that game, <laughs> which, again, I have mentioned before. So let me just go ahead and spit it out. We're talking about Fallout. Yeah, though, with that, I mean, if we could fall under fair use policy and have the Butcher Pete paying in the background while you're going through that whole spiel, it would be yeah. perfect. It's hacking, and whacking and snapping that meat. <laughs> yeah. Chopping that meat. There we go. As a TTRPG, because I actually played a game um, where Ian was working on the old, um, we will call it the alpha version would be generous but in uh, i would call it the gamma version <laughs> okay. it was about the third iteration by the time you got to see it okay it, it um, has advanced well beyond that now yes <laughs> but even then it had a lot to bring to it which i like it did need some more polishing and ian did i don't know if he, he did mention but he did actually go out and purchase the fully published version too when they finished and polished it for presentation so that is good. And I'm actually looking forward to getting to play that with him eventually. But Fallout as a game, as a franchise is good. It really does lend itself to a tabletop game. If you've played the first, you know, the original Fallout's 1 and 2, which is where I got my start, you can see where it directly, it leans very heavily into second edition D&D. Very, very heavily. So it is very easy to bring to the tabletop. And 
while we do primarily focus a lot on our high fantasy, particularly with 5e, Fallout lets you tackle tropes and questions and scenarios that might not necessarily be so easy to bring up in that kind of setting, but are still really interesting and could let your players' imaginations do a lot of work. Right, because there are a lot of trappings surrounding high fantasy. You know, there are certain tropes that are almost synonymous with the genre, with the aesthetic that you have to work very hard to remove if you want to remove them. Things like, you know, a monarchy or a monarchical structure, or, you know, that hereditary aristocracy sort of vibe that is almost cooked in to high fantasy because so much of high fantasy is based around that medieval European vibe. And that is the neat thing with Fallout is because Fallout in its own form is a fantasy. And since it is this weird, like imperfect future, if you want those things, you can easily bring those back in because I mean, we have historical evidence of that kind of thing happening. Sure. Families come in, they set up. But then if you want to have, you know, your anarchist coming, you know, syndicate, you know, with Moise and Vince lobbing scimitars at people, you can do that too. The inflection of technology versus magic is another really fun one. How information is disseminated, how your players are going to interact. I mean, there are just a lot of things that if you can step away from the medieval fantasy settings dealing with a modern world, which is why things like cyberpunk games have the same ability to kind of bring it to you. And this would kind of run along the same side as Fallout, where you get this more futuristic, everything's different, but everything's still kind of the same. All right. So I'm glad you brought that up because that brings me into my talking points. (laughs) I (laughs) segue. So if you want to categorize Fallout into a genre, the genre that Fallout falls into is Adam Punk. Okay, I like it. I like the term. Adam Punk is generally bleak and dystopian. Um, It focuses a great deal on the catastrophic, long-lasting aftermath of things like atomic energy, especially, you know, dealing with nuclear waste and dealing with fallout from nuclear weapons. Thus the name. (laughs) Thus the name, yes. I was really hoping, whenever I started off on this, that the band Fallout Boy was inspired by the video games but they are actually, in fact, named after a character from a Simpsons episode. Oh, Radioactive Man and Fallout Boy. Fallout Boy, yeah, yeah. Uh, That makes me sad to know that, but it does make sense. Anyway, continuing on. Adam Punk is generally rooted in Cold War era. It often has very strong capitalist versus communist message in the storyline. That is a very common, very strong driving force. It Um, will be, and that does lead to some problems taking it with a modern lens, and you can tweak that however you want. You can explore that, you can tweak it, you can leave it out, but I will say that aspect of the lore can grow to be problematic. eh, It can. Depending on how it's presented. Yeah, it can easily get into preachy ideology very quickly, but I'll get to that later. (laughs) Some of the examples that I'm familiar with of Adam Punk media. Uh, You've got the short story, A Boy and His Dog by Harlan Ellison. That was a huge influence on on the Fallout game. A huge, huge influence on the Fallout game. That's why you have dog meat. Yes. I think that the dog in the story is actually named dog meat. It is. In the first one, it is, yes. Yeah. So another 
uh, major title that has very strong Adam Punk sort of vibes to it is The Outer Worlds, okay. which was made by Obsidian Games, which is the studio that made Fallout New Vegas. They also, Obsidian Games was the branch off of Laren Studios, which actually made Fallout 1 and Fallout 2, which is why, in my opinion, Fallout New Vegas feels much more correctly like a Fallout 3 than Fallout 3 did. Fallout 3 was a wonderful game, but New Vegas absolutely captured the feel of Fallout. There were some tiny aspects where I liked Fallout 3 better, but the, by and large, some, but yeah. by and large, New Vegas was a far superior game. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Again, um, we, we and, can break these down here. Later, and yes. and uh, and another one that might be a little bit more controversial is Star Wars. Star no, Wars is that. Adam Punk. Yeah. Okay. I, I think. See that. I, I, it, I can see kind of where you're coming from. It does come from that era, definitely in that Cold War era. Uh, you've got, you know, your laser pistols and stuff like that. You don't have as much with your whole radiation and nuclear thing, but you have that like kind of. It's it's not explicit. Future, but all of the all of the trappings are there. You've got yeah. everything has that level of grunge and rust and you know scuffed paint and all of that, hearkening back to we used to have good times and we have hit lean times. Okay, I get that. Yeah, you definitely have the, the whole like empire in decline. Well, I guess the empire uprising, the Republican decline. Very much hearkening to the, the fall of the Roman Empire. I can kind of see that, yeah. So now on the flip side of that coin, on the other side of Adam Punk is another genre called Ray Punk. Ray Punk is bright and hopeful where Adam Punk is bleak and dystopian. Okay. It tends to focus more on a world in which they have harnessed the atom to create clean, colorful future of post-scarcity. You're looking at the dichotomy between fission and fusion, typically. I get that. And two, this is going to be more of your like 50s and 60s sci-fi things like Lost in Space. Yeah, things like the Jetsons, yeah. uh, Flash Gordon, right? the Tomorrowland area at Disney. Yeah. Absolutely. And especially Star Trek, the original series. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Star Trek TOS is. Oh, I don't know. Is about a, uh, yes. Yeah. Oh, I can it, see it. But the first see that first season of TOS was very much like Twilight Zone. And so there was a lot of sinister just under the surface of everything. But things by and large. Were good. No, I, li- I like it. I like but it. The, but the about. setting was utopian. Yes, this is true. You know, that's the big difference is, you know, the setting Adam, okay. Adam Punk is dystopian. Ray Punk is utopian. OK, so because there's just different interpretations of the same aesthetic, they are retro futuristic aesthetics. Yes. And that is one of the things that really sold me on the Fallout games as an idea, as a concept, as a series to start with is because it was that meshing of the two, because everyone was promised and was expecting, you know, we'd call this Ray Punk. Everything is going to be perfect. We got the Atom. It's America's golden age. It's all of this. And then as you play the game, you realize how completely messed up everything got. It yeah. was. And so, yeah. And then you have everything else. And so you have people literally crawling out of the bunkers and shelters, trying to piece together the world. And now it is very fully Atom Punk, though they were still promised the GEC, the Garden of Eden creation kit, you know, that yes. kind of thing. I love it. So the area loosely covered by Adam Punk is the 1930s to the 1960s. I was listening to a podcast in preparation for this episode, the Story Punks podcast. And in this one particular episode, they had John Pica, who is the host of the Diesel Punk podcast. 
And his opinion is that Adam Punk is a subgenre of diesel punk and that it takes place between the dropping of the atomic bombs in 1945 and the launching of Sputnik in 1957. I see that. I would almost agree with that. I would say Adam Punk, for me, if I was going to picture it, I would put it to the dropping of the atom bomb, probably to the start of the Vietnam War. And again, this is coming from just a very Americanized lens. But again, that was where we kind of hit our golden age. You know, there was a car in every garage and a chicken in every pot type thing. And everything was supposed to be great and perfect. And technology was completely unleashed and innovations were happening all the time. And so, yeah, with the launch of Sputnik, you do start getting those shadows, but that whole real kind of shifting of, wait, maybe not everything is as what they're telling us is correct or what they've promised, I think really kicked in towards the start of the Vietnam War. The way that he was explaining it is 1957 with the launch of Sputnik, that marked a point where you had a tonal shift in media. Yes, absolutely. And that's why he delineates it there. Okay. That is a fair point, too. I'm not certain what comes after. That was outside of the parameters of the conversation they were having (laughs) in that episode. But yeah, so he's saying that diesel punk in total as a genre ends at 1957 with the launch of Sputnik and that Adam Punk being a subgenre is the latter portion of diesel punk that focuses on this endeavor towards understanding the atom i would call it at that point i mean if we had to name it i would start the space maybe moon punk or space punk orbital punk something along those lines when you get the strong space race stuff yeah so this particular you know atom punk ray punk it falls within the same sort of space as uh, golden age sci-fi and silver age comics Okay. So you get a lot of that influence into it as well. You get the architectural aesthetic that has been coined as ray gun gothic. Yep. That is that aesthetic that you get with the curved lines and the chrome and the monocolor enameled plates. And it's one of those things where you see it and you know it. Yeah, you see it. You know it. That 50s diner look. Absolutely, yeah. So you've got that kind of that mix of the futuristic technology, but you still have the fairly quote quote modernized. But in the 60s and 70s, you have the downtown, but it is still kind of grungy. It is starting to run down. And this is why you start picking up that gothic trim is because you do have just like the wearing down of the environment. Um, it's not brand new, but you still have this new technology of stuff going through. I think a good example of this would be something like The Watchmen. Again, you have yeah. uh, was it? Dr. Manhattan is a great example of this ray gun gothic. You know, again, he's very bright. He's very luminous. Generally one color in the dark, in the shadows, running alley to alley, that kind of thing. So the term ray gun gothic was coined by William Gibson. It's from his 1981 book, The Grinsbeck Continuum. And to blatantly rip from Wikipedia, <laughs> the style has also been associated with architectural indulgence and situated in the context of the golden age of modern design due to its use of features such as single support beams, acute angles, brightly colored paneling, as well as shapes and cutouts showing motion. Okay, yeah, I can see that. And again, this is going to be like a lot of your 50s diners that kind of pop up. Yeah, Yeah. Airstream trailers, you know, that rounded, chromed look. Yes. You know, the 57 Chevy Bel Air. (laughs) Yes. You know, those lines, that aesthetic, that whenever you translated that into architecture, that's what Ray Gun Gothic looks like. Yeah. You know, fins, fins everywhere. 
<laughs> That's a good aesthetic, but diving into what this is great for building up a mental image, but what's the game going to look like if we put it on the table? Because I mean, we could probably print off some pretty cool minis and get them painted up, and that, that would be pretty sick to have you know the time to do all those minis and have them out on the table. But we're sitting there, we're playing the game. What's it going to be? I mean, are you asking me to go into a first impressions on the actual game? Yeah. Okay. So what's the mechanics of the game going to build up? So the core mechanics of the Fallout role-playing game run off of two sets of die rolls. You have D20 rolls and you have D6 rolls. My first impression of the game itself is that I really like what they did. Okay. It's kind of an interesting layout in the book. The core rules and the combat rules are chapters one and two. Nice. You don't get to character creation until chapter three. That's probably a correct way to do that. And I really like that because that means that the person who buys the book can read the book because they have it. They can pre-generate characters. And then the people who are sitting down to play for the first time only have to read this first little chunk. Yeah. Yeah in order to understand how to play the game. Here's how to play. Because they'll be able to extrapolate from what's on their sheet in front of them what they're reading. Okay. And it seems to work fairly well. I haven't gotten a chance to actually make out a character sheet and sit down and try that yet, but it seems like it works fairly well. I kind of like this too, because again, if it comes down to it, whoever is the GM, and we will talk about some phrasing um, that Ian dislikes with this, but whoever is the game master at this point, they can easily go through and supply that first chapter or two to the players and their characters. And it is fairly easy. I think that is one thing, like if you buy the D&D handbook and you've got all your races and characters, one, that's a lot. And I understand character generation is a huge part of the game and it's a huge part of most RPGs, even in video games. But I think you get so wrapped up in creating the character sometimes that it's hard to bridge into the story. Yes. And I like what Modifius did with this because it is so much less dense than D&D. So the core rules and the combat rules all together including a few full image pages, take 30 pages. Those first two chapters are 30 pages. And the text density on those pages is about a third of what you have in the 5th edition player's handbook. Right. I mean, it's decent-sized text. It's spread out a little bit to make it nice and easy to read. You don't have to worry about your eyes crossing if you don't have perfect light to read under. I mean, and it's worded very well good it's easy to read it's easy to follow one of the things that i really like that helps push you into a more narrative sort of gameplay as opposed to a very tactical gameplay like you'd have in DD, they don't use fixed distances okay they use zones the same way that the fate system does oh very nice so you have Five total zones. You have reach, which is anything that you can touch from where you're standing. You have close, which is anything that you can move to and interact with on this round. Okay. You know, anything in the immediate vicinity. You have medium, which is they're over there. I can see them. If I spent this entire turn walking to them, I would reach them. But that's all I would be able to do. You have long range which is they're beyond that <laughs> the way over there and you have extreme range which is they're beyond that 
Okay. No, that's fair. That is a good way to kind of break that up. It makes mapping, I think, a little more generous, and it's not quite as nuts and bolts. You don't necessarily even have to have a map. Right. I think it does lead itself more to, that's what I was trying to get to, is it leads itself more to theater of the mind, which can be fun as well. Right. And the ranged weapons are set up in such a way as to utilize this sort of abstracted range system. So they, they are set up with an optimal range. So they'll be listed as a close range weapon. So if you're in close range, you don't take any penalties when you're attacking somebody with it. But for each range increment beyond, you get an additional plus one to your difficulty. So, okay. yeah, you can take your throwing knife and you can attack that person at extreme range, but it's going to be at a plus three difficulty. So it's going to be almost impossible to actually hit them with it. I roll a six. <laughs> and the inverse is also true is like, yeah, you've got a dude standing within 10 feet of you. You're going to have a whole lot of trouble pulling a bead on him with your giant sniper rifle with your 40 times magnification scope. Right. That, no, that, know, ma that makes perfect sense. And I really like because it's a simple mechanic. Yeah. I like the simplicity of that mechanic. Now, that is combat. How do social interactions work as far as with this system? So attack rolls and skill rolls all together follow the same sort of pattern. Every single roll has an attribute and a skill attached to it. You take your value of your attribute, you take the value of your skill, you add them together, and that is a benchmark. Okay. And then you roll d20s and you try to roll that number or lower. It's a roll under system. Okay. So that does have, again, a little bit of the old Thacko and D&D 2nd Edition feel, but the way it's described, I don't think it would be too terribly confusing. No, it's not. And so... I just remember when we ran that test game of yours, and I had a benchmark of 18 with my brand new trusty flamethrower in the middle of an alcohol store, and I rolled a natural 20. I'm like, yes, a natural 20. And he's like, well, actually, you know... <laughs> yeah, this is a roll under, and you just exploded the liquor store. Congratulations. <laughs> and so you start off with two D20s for every single roll. You can end up buying additional D20s by using action points. And I'll get to action points here in a little bit because it's a unique mechanic that exists in Fallout that they utilized in a very interesting way in the role playing game. So you can get up to five dice, up to five D20s in your pool. And then every check has a difficulty of one to five. And that's how many successes in your D20 pool you have to get in order to pass this check. Oh, I like that system. I think another way just like off the cuff without going through, I would say like you can do as many actions as you had D20s to roll. But I do like the fact that they do give you a pool and you can do this much per turn with your thing. I think that is a wonderful idea. And that does harken back to that old turn-based feel of fallout one and two. Right. And so the way that action points work is that it is a communal pool. It is a pool at the middle of the table that all of the players get to add to and take from. Oh, wait, it, I have to, I, I have to cooperate with my other players. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know how I play this. No, no, I'm out. No, no. <laughs> uh -oh. So, it starts off with the GM, the game master, has a number of action points that they get to use equal to the number of players at the table. Okay. And as far as I can tell, the players start off with zero. But the way that you generate action points is by generating more successes than you need on a task. Oh, so if, that is a great way to do that. I love yeah. that. So if you were doing a difficulty one task 
and you roll two successes, one of those successes goes into the pot as an action point. Oh, nice. And then somebody can snag that and add a die to their roll. They could re-roll something. They could add damage to a melee attack. You know, there's a whole list of things that you can do with action points. You can take an extra action on your turn. That is a great mechanic. I love that. Now, um, again, this is probably going to be for a more seasoned tabletop player because, again, that kind of player cooperation, you're going to really want to discuss when to use those action points versus, you know, have that one guy that always, you know, sits there and does hungry, hungry hippos. And as soon as something's on the table, they grab it. But Well, there are limits to how many action points you can spend in a turn. Okay. You can only, like, spend, I think, three action points at any given time. Okay. And the pool maxes out at six action points. Okay, I like that. Okay, that's... So and it, it's set up in such a way to where you're encouraged to use them. Okay. Because if your pool is full, you can't add any more to it. That makes sense. And there are also mechanics where if you really need to add extra dice to your dice pool so that you can roll against a particularly difficult challenge and there are no action points in the pool, you can gift an action point to the game master to get that extra die. Oh, that's dangerous. That is so dangerous. I love it. Yeah. So it has a lot of tie in with the fate system in that way, in that mechanical way. Yeah. And I like the meshing that they've done with this. This sounds, I do need to sit down and fully explore the fate system. I think this is a system I would enjoy, but I am liking how they fleshed this out so far. Yeah. A couple of my, I only have two real gripes so far. Gripe number one is that they have special D20s and D6s for the game, which are not included with the book. You have to buy them separately. What makes them special? Well, with the D20s, you have two that are just standard D20s. And then the third one, it's a location die because they have the body broken up into locations. You have the head, both arms, both legs and the torso. And so whenever you're making attacks, you have to roll the die unless you are specifically aiming towards a specific part. Gotcha. And that determines, you know, where you hit and what defenses the thing is using. That's a little bit of a clunky part of it. Initially, I haven't read too closely into that part of the game mechanics yet. Okay. And I think if you lacked that die, I think you could probably run that fairly well with maybe a D6. Well, they have the table for converting your results for both of these. That is good, at least. It's just that I dislike the fact that they made special dice but did not include them. No, I get that. And then you have to use a table in order to tell you what your dice say. I get that, but I do, I do like me some tables though. And then with, (laughs) and then with the D sixes, because you use the D sixes for your damage whenever you hit with a weapon. So every weapon has a damage number. That's how many D sixes you get to roll. Ooh, I cast fireball. A one on the D six means that the attack deals one damage. A two means it deals two damage. Three and four are blanks. That means that you don't deal any damage with them. Oh. Five and six are one damage plus one damage effect. Because every weapon also has a damage effect. So a special thing that happens on top of damage. So things like piercer, so it ignores armor. Or persistent, so it deals recurrent damage every round. Things like that. Interesting. And those are the sorts of things that you get with the dice. And yeah, so you have 
you know, you have opposed checks where both parties roll against each other. The person being rolled against rolls first to set the benchmark of this is how many successes you need to beat me. Okay. And then depending on other circumstances, difficulties could be added to that to make it more or less difficult. So like, say, I was trying to wrestle a death claw. <laughs> Good luck with that. Just saying. Just for fun. Just for, Just fun. for fun. If the death claw is bearing down on me, I'm probably going to have difficulty on that. Probably. I'm going to have to get more successes in order to be successful at that because death claws are big and mean and strong and want to rip me apart. However, you need more successes than one Thomas Edison. However, <laughs> if I were wearing power armor, that would probably balance out. Yeah, I could see that. If I were wearing power armor and the death claw were coming down a muddy hill and I was standing on the gravel road at the bottom of said muddy hill. Absolutely. I would have an advantage on that. So I would have difficulty removed from that. Gotcha. So that's that's the sort of thing that you got going on. No, again, I think they've finally, the way they've brought up a lot of these questions and issues, I think they've found a good balance for most of them, which is really good to see. Because like I said, Fallout absolutely needed to be a tabletop game. It did. And I love the fact that it is as accessible as it is. So now that we've got some of the basic mechanical stuff out of the way, because we're not going to be doing a true deep dive into the mechanics of right. the Fallout role-playing game, mainly because I haven't done a close enough reading to do that yet. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about what sort of aesthetics to pull into a game. Say you want to try and run Fallout, the role-playing game, at your table, or you want to try and use another system, you know, one of the Blades in the Dark systems or one of the uh, Powered by the Apocalypse systems, you know, Apocalypse World would be a good one to use for this. <laughs> Strangely enough. Strangely enough. And you want to try and get the vibe right, you know, make it feel like a Fallout game. There are some aspects that are important to keep in mind whenever you're bringing up a Fallout game. Um, first off, and this is one that I think gets overlooked a lot of times. Fallout is post-apocalyptic. Yes. It is not apocalyptic. Yeah. The apocalypse has come and gone. Congratulations. You've made it. Yes, you have made it to the other side of the apocalypse. It's done and we're picking up the pieces. So you're living in a world where people are almost without exception survivors. Yes. They are people who even the best people that you might run into have probably had to do some heinous thing in order to still be there to talk to you. Yes. Because there is all manner of food scarcity, all sorts of resource scarcity. You know, there are people whose whole thing is the only way that I can think of to get the things that I need because of the desperation that I'm in is to take it from someone else. You know, raiders are a very big thing in the Fallout games. Oh, absolutely. I was going to say, I've got a couple of thoughts on this. One is kind of can't be an off cuff, but it does remind me, especially because we are coming up on the Thanksgiving holiday soon. But it was a line from a song. But what do settlers imply, if not the willingness to settle, to settle for a warm meal? <laughs> you know, and I was talking about right. the, the use of human cannibalism and the Donner Party and the early settlers like in Jamestown and uh, Plymouth. Which, I mean, but that is, they are settlers. They are going to settle for what they can to survive. So coming through this, though, I think 
another way you could see this too, where people are going to do what they need to do to survive is if you see like the old gritty films and it shows the deep inner cities where there's a lot of gang presence. You have a lot of organized crime, be it, you know, from whatever. And you might not necessarily want to work or interact with these factions, but they literally are everything, be it, you know, something like the Bloods or the Crips or the Italian Mafia or, you know, a Latino group, you know, and they have worked their way. So where they basically run these areas of the town and you can't do anything without interacting with them because they are literally everything. And so you often have to pick the lesser of two evils. Right. Or the evil that is required. Yes. Sometimes you have to settle for pragmatism. Yes. You have to bury your ideals and settle for the pragmatic approach. Absolutely. And so, yeah, you are not always going to have birds and happy fun time singing. Sometimes it is going to be very, very bleak. And the Fallout games, while campy and while fun, they do have their moments of very, very bleak. Oh, absolutely. They absolutely do. And then the next thing that you have to keep in mind is that, as I said, it's Adam Punk, which means it is a punk genre. Yes. And by a punk genre, that means that it is exemplifying some sort of resistance to a set of established norms. As a punk setting, it has an element of anti-authoritarianism built into it. Oh, yeah. Specifically in the case of Adam Punk and in Fallout in general, it's against big corporations. It's against the government. Yeah. It's against government refusal to regulate yes. corporations. It's against overreach by the power hungry and the rich. Because again, among the first people to come out, I mean, depending on when the vault opened, but people started grabbing up resources and hoarding them. And so if you're hoarding all the resources, you were the rich. And there are several instances within the game where someone just didn't want to share or sell those because they wanted to make a spot for themselves. And so everyone else was suffering because of it. Yes. And then also you have the complete erosion of the middle class. Yes. I mean, leading up to the bombs falling, that was what was precipitating the collapse of the civilized world in the Fallout universe. Right. You know, you were having resource wars because everything was running out. Yeah. And only the ultra wealthy were able to afford to buy these things. And so you were having, you know, rolling brownouts and blackouts and you had people storming ration stations trying to get their rations. You see that all throughout Fallout 4. I think Fallout 4 did a little bit better job of explaining that aspect of the pre-war. That, um, yeah, that be, was the one because, thing Fallout 4 did right. I, I have because the characters started pre-war. So you had to have a little bit of that background yeah. and a little bit of that buy-in. Right. So you end up having that aspect of it as well. So you've got a whole bunch of people who are, they're, they're hardened survivors. They are going to do what is necessary to ensure that they and theirs make it to tomorrow. I get that. Yeah. And you're going to have, I'm not saying that there aren't, wealthy, privileged individuals in this world. There absolutely are. Anybody who has the wherewithal to mass enough resources can find enough willing bodies to accept pay 
to protect. Yes. And that is going to be a thing. I think if you want kind of a visual representation, now this is going to be a bit of a hot take. And so you can flag me on this one if you want. But if you kind of want a visual representation of what this is going to look like, I'm going to go with the old 70s. It stretched a little bit into 80s show. But MASH. MASH would be a perfect kind of visual for this because, again, yes, they do have technology, but they are still mostly living in tents. There is a huge divide between the wealthy and the not, either with the U.S. soldiers and then the native Koreans or even with the doctors and the officers and the non-commissioned people. You know, they are improvising because they are constantly lacking and missing required resources to do their job, particularly in this case, medicine. And they are kind of, you know, figuring out and monkeying things together as best they can to make things work. But they are always on that brink of failure and failure means death for everyone. Yeah, this is basically a diet version of the interaction between regular people and the corpse in cyberpunk okay cyberpunk is taking this and cranking it up to 11 must be because go to 11 (laughs) Um, but anyway the third aspect that i wanted to touch on is that fallout is retro futuristic yes the entire aesthetic of the fallout universe is post-wars 1950s america yeah the primary conceit is that they focus on nuclear technology but they never develop the microchip okay And so that's why you end up having these big clunky computers that are only able to do very limited things. The old ion tubes and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, with little vacuum tubes and cathode ray tubes and stuff. And yeah, however, it's also buying into that golden age sci-fi of robots with near or true AI. Yeah. I mean, you have all of that going on as well. And you also have a heavy heavy emphasis on the pre-regulation capitalist tendencies to just ruin everything around them. Oh, yeah. It very much a let the buyer beware. Emperor caveat. Well, this is all of the things that were happening in 50s and 60s America. (laughs) DuPont. What? what? (laughs) Leading up to things like the creation of the EPA. Yes. The creation of OSHA. The Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, these sorts of things that came about in the early 70s whenever they realize, oh, we are really messing things up. Maybe we're the bad guys. Nah, we've got money. We can't be the bad guys here. Yeah, just dump that all back. Again, this is one of those things that makes my skin crawl. I quote it jokingly frequently, but I was in a chemistry lab. I was working on stuff. We were disposing (laughs) things. I know this story. And I was literally told, quote, the solution to pollution is dilution, which literally means pour it down the drain and run a bunch of water through it and nobody will notice. <laughs> yeah. And this is regularly emphasized in lore entries within game. Yes. So, you know, computer terminal entries talking about things like the annual fishing tournament out of this lake. And they ended up having to cancel it because somebody fell out of their boat and died from the chemical burns. Yes. And, you know, things like that. But you also see it with the existence of certain enemies that you face in the game. So things like death claws. Death claws are the result of genetic engineering on chameleons. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if I recall correctly, that was part of the work towards the forced evolution virus, but even something in Fallout. Uh, it was it was a separate program. Okay. Uh, Death Claws were not part of the FEV program, I okay. don't think. Okay. But, but the FEV program did also exist, and that's where you get centaurs. That's where you get super mutants from. Right. But I was going to say, you have the geckos in Fallout 2, and they were a direct result from the pollution. And so you had like the silver skin gecko or the golden skin uh, geckos um, that yeah. you would hunt, but they were, you know, these kind of armored thick skin and very, very bitey things that you fight on early, but they were a direct result from the environmental pollution. Yeah. As well as, you know, rad scorpions. Yeah. Rad scorpions were just emperor scorpions from pet shops that ended up mutating and getting bigger with all of the latent radiation rolling around. Right. And then you also have, Robo brains. Robo brains are my personal favorite. They go into the lore of them a little bit more in Fallout 4 and the original Robo brains, the brain in the Robo brain is an actual human brain that was taken from an inmate in a prison. That kind of reminds me a bit of the plot for Robocop 2. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So that's the sort of absence of regulation and absence of ethics. Yes. You just look at any terminal entry talking about the experiments that Vault Tech was doing in the vaults, <laughs> and you can see the absolute absence of ethics. Well, that's the whole thing is every vault was an experiment. Except um, for the ones that were specifically controls. Oh, the only one that was specifically a control was Vault 13, and that is per Fallout 2. That is no longer canon because they sold it and they have expanded that list. Did they retcon that in Fallout 4? Oh, Vault 101 was a control vault. Was 101 a control vault? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Did it specifically say that? Which one was that? I'm missing that. But All anyway, three. Think, oh, okay. Wait, yeah. I'm trying to think. Vault 13. No, Vault 13 was the... Vault 13 was in uh, Fallout 2, I think. 2, yeah. It's also Fallout... Was it 2? Fallout, was that the one Fallout where you one. had to get the water chip? Fallout 1 is where you get the water chip. Fallout 2 is you have to fight the Enclave and you're looking for something else. I know that Vault 13 is tied to the Enclave. I don't recall how. Okay, so here's a spoiler for a 30-year-old game now. But Fallout <laughs> 1, you have to find the water chip because you were supposed to have extra water chips and you didn't. Fallout 2, you find out that the Enclave was actually the part of the U.S. government that had survived. And they were also tied in with Vault Tech. And so every vault was an experiment. So some vaults had like a bunch of extra water chips, but limited food. Some had a bunch of food, but not enough water chips. Some were all men and one female. Some were all, all ladies and one guy. So whatever social experiment they could conceive, they threw these people in. Each vault was just a different social experiment that they could imagine and throw people in together to see how they react and how they turned out. The problem is I think Vault 13 was supposed to be the control, but because they screwed up the shipping, they didn't get their extra water chips. And that's why you were selected in Fallout 1 to go find the water chip, which leads to I love the opening to Fallout 2. And again, this is a bit of a spoiler, but it shows at the thing because the Enclave is going through and they're trying to wipe out basically, okay, these experiments are done. We don't need this information. We don't need all of these other issues going on because there's enough stuff going on so like the end of the intro for fallout 2 it shows the doors opening it's sliding out it's that giant cog thing and it's opening up and the people are standing up ready to exit the vault for the first time and the enclaves in there in the full mark ii power armor with automatic weapons and they just start mowing everybody down and then it goes fallout 2 and then it goes into the game and that's just like that opening just like ooh, gave me chills sorry rabbit track. all right 
No, no, that's fine. So uh, we have a little bit of time left. Let's talk a little bit about what sort of themes we would like to see in a game, you know, because you have different aspects to the games. You have factions like the Brotherhood of Steel. The Brotherhood of Steel is a very prominent one that has played across multiple games. The Enclave has showed up in multiple games. The Children of Adam have showed up in multiple games. NCR. Yeah, NCR. The Cons. What's the other? I know the Cons is a big rating group, but there's another counter group. We have the Vipers and the Jackals. Yeah. We also have just people out there making their own way on top of all of that, too, which is kind of fun. Absolutely, yeah. And there are some factions that are specific to certain games. You have, while they do make a cameo appearance in Fallout 3, the Institute is Fallout 4. The Railroad is Fallout 4. Yes. I had so many issues with Fallout 4. I need to replay it and give it a second shot, but so many issues. (laughs) Caesar's Legion is a Fallout New Vegas thing. Yes. The Power Gangers are a Fallout New Vegas thing. Yes. You know, so as long as the faction that you create fits into you know the aesthetic and fits into a slot within the world it should work i think the three or four main like archetypes for your factions you're going to have a paramilitary faction you're going to have a scholarly slash religious faction you're going to have an organized crime faction and then you're going to have a local government faction those are your four very broad overarching archetypes and i mean that goes pretty well for most any (laughs) city (laughs) setting you know So that is definitely a thing. You are going to have resistance groups too, running either to the local or even higher government, which I I like. They really pushed that one with Fallout 3, which I think they did a really good job with the DJ, something dog. I forget what his name was. Three dog. Yeah, three dog. I think they did that really well. And I would love to see either in-game or a tabletop game. I can think of this a couple of ways, either doing something like a French resistance where they're giving out coded message to the players where to go and they're communicating this way. Or even if you had a group and they're saying, and this is a bit more modern than Fallout, but I think it would work really well. But going with the whole satanic panic, because even if you go back to the 60s with the Beatles, and that's when they started talking about that whole, you know, like back masking and reverse speech type thing in the music. And so maybe a group is thinking that this broadcaster, this radio personality is playing this music or these things giving some sort of subliminal messages. And they're trying to send you out to find the location of the broadcast and shut it down in whatever way possible. Right. That would work. And, you know, I like having a story that is focused on the rebuilding aspect of this, the the post part of the post-apocalyptic, because so often we get tied up in the apocalyptic part, the part where everything is shit. Right. And, you know, you see that so often in the visual aesthetic of the Fallout games is that there's all these ruins everywhere where there's literally just skeletons that have been laying here for 200 years. Why has nobody (laughs) taken care of that yet? That requires effort. (laughs) And that's just it is it's not required for survival. And so that's why nobody has done it. Right. But again, that gets things to like where you get to Vault City in Fallout 2. But again, that's that divide between the haves and have nots. And Vault City is a shining gem of a city. It's just you have to be a member of the club to be there. Right. So those are some of the things going to find something. All of the Fallout, all of the modern Fallout games, we're going to ignore 76 because I've not played 76 and it does not interest me. (laughs) I want to play Fallout by myself. Damn it. Exactly. Uh, I play games to be antisocial. Right. (laughs) But, you know, Fallout 1 also falls into this. I know is 
you start off the game and you are searching for a specific something. Yeah, I'm a guffin. Fallout 1, you're searching for the water chip. Fallout 3, you're searching for your dad. Fallout 2, you're looking for the geck. Yeah. Fallout New Vegas, you're looking for the mother that shot you in the head. Yes. <laughs> but I think going with your rebuilding, the geck does have that feel because that was the whole thing is they were supposed to have a geck and they didn't, but that was how they were going to pick back up after. You know, that was going to be their post-apocalypse. So yeah, no, I like that. And even if you're dealing with, you know, your local town, government, whatever, and they're all putting themselves together. And yeah, it would make sense to hire some fairly well-armed and capable gophers to go and acquire resources and bring them back so you can use them. Or maybe acquire a person who knows how to use specific tools or has a piece of lost knowledge to bring it back to rebuild. Yeah, okay, great. We've got all these supplies, but we need engineers. We need architects now. So yeah, go find some for me. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you also have what is hinted at at the beginning of Fallout New Vegas. You have surveyors. Yeah. And they're not surveyors like they're not going out and measuring property boundaries or anything. No, these are the people that are going into the ruins looking for tech. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Quick correction here. The word I was looking for was prospector, not surveyor. Right concept, wrong noun. They're going in looking for food stores they're going in looking for medicine they're going in looking for computers and robots that work you know they're going in looking for weapons anything right. of value yeah they're going in looking for books that have information that they need in order to do things right and even in, in fallout 3 was it mariah uh, that you meet in megaton where she's writing the book i believe moira it. yeah moira yeah this is that exactly she's trying to collect knowledge to pass on so people can move forward. And that, again, that ties into that post of the post-apocalypse really well. Right. I feel like we got a little bit rambly there. A little but, bit, but still fun. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like we got our point across. <laughs> anyway, Fallout, great series. Looks to be a really solid tabletop game. And again, what I really like about it is that this gives us the opportunity to bring different scenarios than just high fantasy to the table. You can still get a, that good fantasy feel, a good like what if. Um, you're replacing magic with technology, which I'm always for. So yeah, definitely check this out. Or if you want to homebrew your own system, absolutely go for it. But the Fallout universe, for lack of a better term, is definitely something that has a lot of potential for tabletop gaming. Yeah, I mean, when it gets right down to it, there's not a whole lot of difference between a ray gun and a wand of magic missiles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, thank you everyone for joining us on our rambly pre-Thanksgiving episode. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or come join us on our Discord and drop a line in our general chat. We'd love to have you come and hang out with us. You can find a link to the Discord in our show notes. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, Blue Sky, and Mastodon. Huzzah. We're still on Twitter? I just don't go there anymore. Unfortunately, I just I don't yeah, have the time. It's, it's too much. So you can find us on all of those platforms at Undercommon Taste. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. That's where our write-ups go. We're also on itch at undercommontaste.itch.io. That's where you can find my solo RPG Forever Home and our liminal horror adventure Beneath the Lake. This is your first time listening to us. We thank you for following along with us. You can find our other podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, please give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you all in two weeks. Happy gaming. 
thanks for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash David Sutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe, and we'll see you then.